But I'd like to begin this morning by preaching on Christmas according to Matthew. Verse number 18 couldn't be any plainer than to say, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. They said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. When ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also." When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. When they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, They departed into their own country another way. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. I pray that the inspired, powerful, uh, limitless Word of God that is not bound would do an eternal work in our hearts this morning. As we approach unto this Scripture, help us, Father, to push away all the preconceptions, all the assumptions, Lord, all of the things that society and culture have made Christmas to be and help us to focus on what in substance is the truth and blessedness of Christmas, the Incarnation. I pray that you'd speak to each and every heart according to your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you consider the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think we could sum up His ministry in seven words. I think the first word would be the word incarnation, that God was manifest in the flesh, dwelt amongst man. I think you could also... Describe it in the word manifestation, that God was revealed to humanity through the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that was one of the chief purposes in his ministry, was to declare the Father unto mankind. I think the word propitiation would be an important word when thinking about the ministry of Christ. For without the cross of Calvary, we have no hope. 
And had it not been for the cross of Calvary, had it not been for Calvary, there would have been no manger. There would have been no incarnation. Uh, I believe we could also use the word resurrection. For we have the only Savior, if we can say Savior in the term of uh, a generic term, we have the only Savior who is resurrected. Amen. We know He is the only Savior. Amen. A lot of religions uh, purport to have a Savior, but we have the only one that is risen from the dead, has conquered death and hell. Then I think we could use the term ascension. Uh, He went back up into heaven, having finished the work that God sent him to do. He presented his blood upon the mercy seat, uh, and he took up residence by the throne of God. And I think we could use the term intercession, for that is what he is doing now. He ever liveth to make intercession for us as our great high priest. I think there's one more word. You leap an entire age with this word, but I think it's the word coronation. For there's coming a day when he'll be crowned, not with a crown of thorns, but with many crowns. And he'll rule and reign in righteousness. It's this first word that we mention, though, that is the heartbeat of the Christmas season and the Christmas theme. The incarnation. Christmas... It's not about candy canes, it's not about presents, it's not about wreaths, it's not about poinsettias, although these are beautiful poinsettias, don't eat them, somebody say them into that. It's not about any of those things, I'm not against those things, but it's not about any of those things. What Christmas is about is the incarnation, that God took up residence on earth, robed himself in flesh, he tabernacled himself amongst men, that he might minister to us and reach us. This is the theme of what Christmas is. When you strip down Christmas to that basic ideal, you'll find that Christmas is present in all four synoptic, or all four gospels. Not just the synoptic ones, all four of them. Matthew describes Christmas, and we'll preach on it here in a moment. Even Mark, in his uh, gospel presenting Christ as the servant of God and servant of man, even he presents Christmas to us. Luke, of course, uh, has the most familiar Christmas account to us in Luke chapter number 2. And then even John, who more vividly than any other gospel writer describes the doctrine of incarnation, uh, he almost more than the other three describes what Christmas is all about. As you consider the four gospels, you'll find them to each have different themes. Uh, The book of Matthew presents Jesus as king of the Jews and as king of kings. It is distinctly framed to present Christ as the heir to the throne of David, as the rightful ruler over Israel as a nation. The book of Mark, as we've said, presents Christ as the servant of God and as the servant of man. Over and over again, you'll find Christ's hands mentioned in the book of Mark because that's what a servant's all about, is what they do with their hands. They minister, uh, they meet needs. The book of Luke presents Christ as the Son of Man. By the way, this is also illustrated in the two genealogies. Uh, Whenever uh, Matthew gives his genealogy, he traces uh, the Lord Jesus back to David and further. And then whenever Luke presents it, he uh, traces him all the way back to Adam. Why is that? Because Luke presents him as the Son of Man. And then the book of John presents him as the Son of God and the Savior of men. Book of John's the only book in the Bible written to lost folks. It was written uh, unto you that you might believe on the Son of God. These varying themes inform the Christmas narratives that are presented to us. We'll find in Matthew's Christmas narrative a distinctly regal or royal element to what he tells us. I want to give you four thoughts this morning. They'll be present to some degree or another in every Christmas account. 
<laughs> but we find them emphasized in Matthew's. Look with me at verse 18. Uh, this begins Matthew's Christmas narrative. And it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately or privily, whichever pronouncement you prefer. While he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Let me say the first thought we see common to the Christmas narrative, but emphasized in the book of Matthew, is we see the pedigree of Christ guarded. As we said a moment ago, there are two different genealogies given uh, in Matthew and in Luke. And in fact, they are different genealogies. The reason is because uh, Mary's genealogy, uh, Luke's genealogy, is, is actually Mary's genealogy. Uh, it describes it as being the genealogy of Joseph because women were not allowed into the registrar of genealogies in that day. And so it was common practice, if you're tracing a woman's genealogy, uh, to place her husband in the place of her within that list. And so he's described as the son of Hiel, who was actually Mary's uh, father. And then Matthew's account uh, records Joseph's genealogy. Now you might say, well, preacher, why is it important to note Joseph's genealogy? Joseph, of course, was not the father of Jesus. Nowhere except one time is he described as the father of Jesus. And that's when Mary spoke that and she was, if we might say, out of order in that instance, uh, when she said that I and thy father, Joseph, have sought thee uh, for uh, sorrowfully. And, uh, the, and Christ answers back and said, I wish ye not that I must be about my father, big F, father's business. So the Lord Jesus gently reminded her that Joseph was not his father. He had a heavenly father. So why was it that Joseph's genealogy was recorded? Well, if you study back through these genealogies, you'll find that Joseph was a direct royal descendant from David. Uh, Mary's descendancy is a little bit more stretched, we might say. It's not that it's not legitimate, but it's a little bit more stretched. In fact, you'll find that Mary is a descendant of Nathan, the son of David. But it wasn't to Nathan that the promises were reaffirmed and the covenant reaffirmed. It was to Solomon that the covenant was reaffirmed, that one of Solomon's descendants would sit upon the throne. And Joseph was a descendant of Solomon. Now you might say, well then why include Mary's? Here's an interesting point of Scripture. Because right before the captivity, there was a king, a ancestor, a descendant of Solomon, an ancestor of Joseph upon the throne by the name of Jeconiah. He was such a wicked man that God told Jeconiah that never would there be a descendant, one of his seed, that would sit upon the throne of Israel. And yet he is the one that is in the line of Solomon. So through Mary's genealogy, there is a legitimate and unhindered connection to King David. And through Solomon's genealogy going down through Joseph, there is a direct royal ascendancy that is connected. Isn't it amazing how the grace of God can allow for the judgment of sin, but also allow for mercy and grace? In that God could pronounce judgment against Jeconiah, but it didn't short-circuit the plan of God. Man, it's good to know, even when we done mess things up, God has a workaround. God always has a way. 
So the Bible tells us that Joseph and Mary are a spouse. They're waiting to be married. And then all of a sudden, Mary turns up with child. I don't know what you would have done, but I know what I would have done. I would have been, I would have done exactly what Joseph did, although I wouldn't have been as merciful as him, if I'm being honest. Joseph, the Bible says he's a just man. There's a lot I want to say about it that I ain't got the time to. But Joseph, the Bible says, was a just man. Seeing that Mary was with child, not having a reasonable, he thought, explanation for it, he assumed that there had been some unfaithfulness. And so he decides to put her away privily or privately. He had the right as a husband to take her before the Sanhedrin, to humiliate her, to demand that she be punished and judged for her sin. But mercy in formed his justness. And so he has mercy upon Mary, and he says, I'm going to put her away privily. I don't want to make a public example of her. The angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and says, Joseph, she's telling you the truth. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. This is God's child. You don't need to fear to take Mary to be your wife. So Joseph awakes from the dream. He does exactly as the Lord instructed him to do. You know the rest of the Christmas story. This detail is so important for two reasons. I want you to notice that in this, in the decision of Joseph and in the providence of God, God guarded the pedigree of Christ from, number one, derision. Had Joseph carried through the plans that he had decided to to put her away privily, then what he assumed would have been assumed by everybody else, that Christ was not the divine Son of God, but was rather the product of fornication and of unfaithfulness. In fact, later on, they go ahead and accuse him of that anyway. They said, we be not born of fornication. But by God instructing Joseph to preserve the marriage, to go on, it was an evidence that this child was of divine origin. One of the great themes and truths of Scripture is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. I believe in the virgin birth. I don't believe a person that denies the virgin birth can know the Lord. They understand the implications of it. Now, that's not to say that every child understands the virgin birth. I didn't when I received the Lord as my Savior. If I'm being honest, there's still a lot I don't understand about it. But only a lost man understanding the implications that if you believe that Christ was born of human parentage, then you must, by virtue of scriptural revelation, believe that He had a sin nature. I don't believe a person can be saved and believe that Christ had a sin nature. This is a fundamental of the faith. And God was very carefully guarding from rumors, from derision, from reproach, the pedigree of Jesus Christ by commanding Joseph to take her to be his wife. Look down at verses 24 and 25. We find something interesting that takes place. The Bible says, Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife. Notice the next phrase, And knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now we don't find anywhere in the angel's message to Joseph, a command to not know Mary until after Jesus was born. Quite possibly, the angel did command it, and God did not record it for us. We don't know. Although this may have been something that Joseph himself took upon himself to observe and to be cautious concerning. But I find in it the providence of God. You know why 
Because if Mary is with child, I think it's apparent that this was fairly early in her pregnancy. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Well, she's had to fess up to Joseph that she is with child. And Joseph is still thinking on these things. It must have been very early in the pregnancy. In fact, probably early enough that had Joseph wanted to hide the situation, he could have took Mary to be his wife. He could have uh, entered into communion with her in that way. And it would have, listen now, been assumed that the child had been Joseph's and not God's. The Lord is protecting the pedigree here, not only from derision, but also from confusion. You'll find this theme all the way through the Old Testament. Uh, You'll find that uh, when Abraham, God had given a promise to Abraham that there would be a miracle child born unto him and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah decided they'd take upon themselves to help God. Hey, listen, don't nothing hurt worse than trying to help God with something that ain't your business. Somebody say amen to that. Something that ain't your job. It's like I heard someone say one time about fixing motorcycles. Said there ain't no motorcycle so broke that a little fixing won't make it worse. The same thing's true, spiritually speaking. Uh, Sometimes we just need to step back and let God be God. Let Him handle His business. They decided they were going to take it upon themselves to fix this situation. So Abraham goes in unto Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, and a child is born. And to this very day, that part of the world roils and boils and spills over because of the dispute about who is the promised child. Satan was seeking to sow discord and confusion in the lineage of the promised son. And I believe he would have desired to do the same thing here. I don't know about you, but if somebody came up to you, we've got we've got some folks with child this morning, and if somebody came up and uh, said, this child is not my husband's child, I'd say, okay. You didn't have to share that. But they said, this child is God's child. I would say, listen, sister, I love you, and I appreciate your faithfulness, and I appreciate your faith, but we probably need to get you checked out. It would strain incredulity, to say the very least. What would people have thought had Joseph been enjoying intimacy with Mary? They would have assumed, no matter what Mary said, no matter what Joseph said, they would have assumed that child was Joseph's or somebody else's, but they would have never imagined and never believed that that child was the Son of God. In fact, I can think of no circumstances that could be better crafted to lend credence and credibility to Mary's claim than the circumstances that God orchestrated. You would imagine if Joseph would not have stayed with her, he would not have married her unless he believed her. And nobody would know the truth of the matter except Mary and God and Joseph. It was a testimony to Joseph's faith that he stayed with her, that he believed God. Not just a testimony to himself, not just a testimony to God, but a testimony to the entire world that Joseph believed with all of his heart that this child was not his, couldn't have been his, he hadn't been with Mary, that this child was God's child. It's interesting that Matthew goes to such great lengths because one of the things you'll find, most of the records throughout human history that have been kept pertain to royalty. We were uh, going back through, we did one of those Ancestry.com things. You ever done one of those? Go through and find the little leaves and find out who you're uh, related to. And sometimes it helps you and sometimes it scares you. Amen. We were doing my lineage. And when we went back through there, I wasn't really related to anybody. The most important person in the world I'm related to is me. 
I ain't really related to nobody important. And uh, But we'd go back through and we'd trace our lineage. We started tracing my wife's lineage. And we noticed that in her family, the name Bruce is very, very prevalent. All the way back through her family. Lots of Bruce. Her papa's named Bruce while we named our little boy Bruce. And generation after generation is named Bruce. And we found out the reason why is because somewhere, and I can't remember all the names. I couldn't if I, if I had a gun to my head. But somewhere back through it, she had a descendant or an ancestor, rather, that was related to Robert the Bruce. Braveheart, you know, freedom! Robert the Bruce was related to Robert the Bruce. And son, when that connection was made, we were able to trace her lineage. Now, who knows if it's true or not, but we were able to trace her lineage all the way back to a Roman emperor. You know why? Because royalty was messed up people, and they all married each other. So if you got plugged into that lineage, that might say something about... Well, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> you get plugged into that, and there's lots of records. Well, nobody keeping no records of backwoods hillbillies in East Tennessee on my side of the family. But if you plug in with royalty, there are records kept. You know why? Because the pedigree of a king or a queen is of utmost importance. And I believe for this reason... God goes to such great lengths in Matthew's account to show us that the pedigree of Christ was carefully guarded by the providence of God. We see not only the pedigree guarded, but look down at verse number 20. The Bible says, While he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son. By the way, I think that's another reason that Joseph did not know her until after Jesus was born. Because it says not only that a virgin shall be with child, but that a virgin shall bear a son. Amen? It says, Shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Another important component of the Christmas narrative is the prophecies that were fulfilled. You know, statisticians have sat down and crunched numbers and have revealed the absolute unimaginable odds it would take for one man to fulfill even one of the prophecies that are related to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet every single prophecy that was given from a star appearing in the heavens to him born, being born in Bethlehem of Judea to him being born of a virgin to the poor being present at his birth to give praise and honor unto him all the way to him fleeing into Egypt to him returning and going into Nazareth. On and on we could go about the prophecies that were fulfilled relating to the Christmas story. We find in this passage three important ones, three large ones that are fulfilled. First, I want you to note that the miracle of Christ's birth is fulfilled. Verse number 20, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. One of the great themes of Christmas is that Christ was not born of human progeny, but was a born of supernatural origin. He is not just a prophet of God, a servant of God, a teacher of God, or a minister of God. He is the only begotten Son of God. He was the firstborn of Mary, but it wasn't His birth that gave entrance to His being. He's always existed in eternity past. He stepped through the veil of time and of life 
whenever he was born of a virgin, but he's always existed. His body may have been born, but he was and is and ever will be. The miracle of his birth is fulfilled. Verse 21, the moniker that would be given to him was a prophecy that was fulfilled. She shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Verse 23 says, They shall call him Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Every name that was given. The name of Jesus, by the way, was prophetically fulfilled because the angel had told Mary and had told Joseph both, you're going to name him Jesus. They named him Jesus. The name Emmanuel, recorded in Isaiah chapter number 7, God with us became uh, an identity and a moniker for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, the ministry of the Lord Jesus was a fulfillment of prophecy. We could on and on, we could talk about all the things that the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. Uh, But I like this broad theme that's given here. Uh, God with us. That would be the prophetic and that would be the uh, ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He would manifest God to humanity. Philip at the close of Christ's ministry, asked Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus replied in John chapter 14, Philip, have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me? Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. (coughs) Paul describes to the young preacher Titus uh, the mystery of godliness when he says that God was manifest in the flesh. There are certain things, we were talking about it in Sunday school this morning, there are certain things that can be known through creation. Uh, There are certain things that can be known through rumination, through thought, through logic. But there are certain things about God that can only be known through revelation and illumination. Uh, We could know there was a God in the heavens. We could know He created all things. We could know that He's a just God and a God of order. But only through the revelation of God through the person of Jesus Christ could we know that God knows who we are, loves us, has interest in us, that He's loving, that He's merciful, that He's compassionate, that His uh, compassions and His mercies are new every morning, that He's a faithful God, that He is a righteous God, that He would justify the sinner. None of this could have been known without the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He declared the only begotten Father, or the only begotten Son that was in the bosom of the Father hath declared Him to us. We find the prophecy fulfilled. But then, I think this is a common Christmas theme. In chapter 2, we see the Prince adored. The Bible tells us that after Jesus was born, well, it says when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. I think the reasonable explanation of that is that the star appeared, verse number 2, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. The star appeared, very likely, at the moment of Jesus' birth. Uh, The book of Numbers describes and prophesies that this would be the case, that a star would arise out of Jacob. We were talking about these wise men in Sunday school this morning, too. Uh, You could have a lot of debate about where they come from. I think it's probably very likely, though, that they came from Persia, from the old Babylonian Empire because a man named Daniel and his companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had brought the Word of God with them into captivity and had stood in official prominence and position and declared the truth of God. Now, these many years later, these wise men who have held a copy, evidently, of the Scriptures for hundreds of years, they've seen that there would be an astrological event that would take place whenever Christ was born. 
They view the star in the heavens. They recognize what it is. They begin to follow it. I don't know what uh, circuitous journey they took. I don't know exactly how long it took them. But whenever they arrived, the Bible says that Jesus, he's no longer an infant. He's no longer a babe, but he is a young child. This carries the idea of a toddler, of a, a child that has uh, motion is the word. And if you've got children, you know they've got motion. Amen. So they arrive in Jerusalem and they go to Herod the king and they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now, I don't know, but I would imagine that Herod spit out his coffee when he heard that. Because Herod is supposed to be the king of the Jews. He's aware that God has given promise that a Messiah would come. When Herod the king heard these things, verse 3, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. They said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, Thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come worship him also. So he sends these wise men to Bethlehem on the instruction of Scripture. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. When they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. You know, Christ came into this world uh, not only that He might die for our sins, but that eventually, one day, He might be worshipped of humanity. One day He will. The Bible says that uh, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. But in the actions of these wise men, I believe we have sort of a shadow of humanity's response to Christ, or at least those that will turn to Him in faith. Notice, first off, he was diligently pursued of them. They saw a sign in the heavens. Mankind sees a sign in the Holy Scriptures that Christ is coming. Even to this day, mankind can find in Scriptures the testimony and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ told the Pharisees, He said, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of Me. No doubt you've heard many times, you've probably heard me say it, that wise men have always sought Him, and wise men still seek after Him. When Christ came into this world, mankind was looking for an answer. To this day, mankind's still looking for an answer. The only answer is found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only was He diligently pursued, but He was devotedly praised of those that found Him. Whenever they see Him... I like the way it says it. Verse number 10, When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. When they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother and fell down and worshipped him. They rejoiced at the star, but they worshipped at the sun. Hey, listen, one of these days right now, uh, (laughs) whom having not seen, Peter said, we've not seen him yet. What do we have? We have the star. We have the truth of Scripture that bears witness that points us to Him. We rejoice exceedingly at the star. One of these days we're going to see Him face to face. We'll be known even as also we are known. And then we'll fall down at His feet. Uh, We'll bow before His throne and we'll worship Him who is King of kings, Lord of lords. He was devotedly praised by those that diligently pursued Him. And let me just say, all of God's people ought to be willing to praise God. It ought to be a regular practice that we praise the Lord. Then notice He was delivered presents. 
uh, the Bible describes that one day when before the throne of God, we'll cast our crowns that He's given us unto Him. Well, they didn't cast crowns, but they did have three gifts, and they bore witness and testimony to the person and ministry of Christ. First, the Bible describes gold. Gold, of course, points to the fact that He is potentate. He is the King of kings. He is royal, and He is sovereign. Then they gave him frankincense. Frankincense uh, was a spice to be burned. And it evokes the idea of his priesthood. Not only is he potentate, but he is priest. He is the one that maketh intercession for us. He is God's high priest. He is the apostle uh, of our confession. And then the Bible says he was given myrrh. Now myrrh is an interesting thing. Uh, Myrrh is a spice, but it is an embalming spice. Uh, The fragrancy of myrrh was only uh, put forth whenever they would take it and grind it and break it apart. And myrrh was used, Not we say embalming, they didn't really embalm in that day, but, but myrrh was used, at least the Jews didn't, myrrh was used to uh, spice and anoint and give fragrance to the body of something dead. Whenever uh, the women brought spices to the grave of Jesus, probably myrrh would have been the main one that they would have brought. Isn't it interesting that they bring myrrh to him? Hey, listen, those wise men must have known something about something. Uh, the Bible says that the angel had told Mary that a soul would go through her own, or a sword would go through her own soul, that this child that would be born would be born not to live, but would be born to die and to live again, to die a sacrifice for us. I, I believe probably nobody in that room except those wise men and Mary understood that gift. Certainly that little toddler would have had no interest in it. But Mary bore witness and testimony to the gifts that were given no doubt it was uh, shown in her mind. It was one of the things probably that she held in her heart that the Bible says that he was given myrrh even at his birth. This represents his propitiation, the reason for which he came. I want to give you one final thought and I'll be done. As we follow this Christmas narrative, we find the pedigree guarded, the prophecy fulfilled, the prince adored. But there's one final thought that I want to give you that encourages me. We see the pretender thwarted. Now, Herod is the king over the Jews at this time. He's not really a king. He's really a prefect of the Roman Empire. He derives his authority, not from God, but from Rome. And he has been allowed to reign over uh, the land of Israel that he might serve the Roman emperor. Whenever he hears that a king has been born, he immediately gets nervous. I believe he was a lot like Pilate. I don't believe it was necessarily that he thought that his throne was going to be taken, but he thought someone was going to disrupt the social peace that they were enjoying and was going to bring down the wrath of Rome upon them, much the way that Pilate did many years later. But Herod the Great, whenever he hears that the king of the Jews or someone purporting to be the king of the Jews has been born. He tells the wise men, he finds out where Jesus was supposed to be born or where the Christ was supposed to be born. And he sends the wise men to go and find him. He tells them, he says, when you find the child, come back and tell me. Uh, I want you to notice first off his design. There was a usurper and pretender to the throne that had the design of deceiving these wise men that he might find the location of the Christ child and short-circuit and disrupt the plan of God for him. What a picture it is of Satan who has sought throughout all of time to do the very thing. Uh, How subtle Herod was. One of Herod's descendants, Christ would label a fox. And certainly the elder Herod here, Herod the Great, exhibited the same qualities His design was deceptive. He had no interest in worshiping the Christ child. He wanted to destroy the Christ child. 
And through subtlety, he sought to find a means to do it. All throughout time, Satan, ever since first, first word that we're told about him is he was more subtle than any beast of the field. He's still deceptive today. I like what it says in verse 12, though. These wise men truly were wise. They knew something wasn't right. They saw the twinkle in Herod's eyes. They saw the snarl in his lips. And the Bible says, being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And here in a moment, we'll see just how enraged Herod was by this. But let me just point to the fact that we see the pretender, his design, but we also see his defeat. He sought to disrupt and short-circuit the plan of God, but the providence of God was guarding the plan of God. God kept Herod from being able to do this. Whenever Herod finds out that he's been made a fool, he's enraged. The Bible says, verse number 13, When they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt. and Be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy it. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod. Look down at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. This is another one of the hints we have that the scene of the wise men in the home would did not take place in Bethlehem, or if it did take place in Bethlehem, it didn't take place on the night of the Lord's birth, because when Herod determines that he's going to snuff out, stomp out the Christ child, he kills every child from two years old and under. Why? Because it had probably been uh, about two years since the star had appeared. So Herod, when he realizes he's been made a fool, all he can do is rage and rant and rail and destroy. An entire generation are laid waste to because of his anger and because of his vehement uh, vitriol. It's a picture, I believe, of what the devil is doing in this church age. He lost the war at Calvary. So he's trying to destroy every life that he can in pursuit of disrupting the plan of God. There's one final thought, and I like this, man. Look down at verse 19. The Bible says, But when Herod was dead, <laughs> when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared, appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead, which sought the young child's life. We see not only his design, his defeat, and his devouring, but we see his ultimate demise. At the end of the day, Herod didn't win. God won. The Christ child outlived the petulant child that was sitting upon the throne. Hey, listen, the story don't end by saying when Christ was dead. The story that ends is that he is him who was alive and was dead, and behold, he is alive forevermore. The last word on old Herod the Great is he was dead. What a reminder we have. And it's so vitally important in this Christmas season to be reminded that without the birth, there couldn't have been the death. Without the death, there couldn't have been the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there'd be no victory. But because of all these things, we have victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. At the end of the day, the devil don't win. At the end of the day, Christ wins. The story of Christmas, not just a story of mangers, not just a story of a Christ child, but it's a story of a victorious Savior that loved you and I enough 
to come to this world to die in our place that we might know God personally in a real way.